Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Frank Portman, Dr. Frank. He's the founder and frontman of the legendary Berkeley punk band, The Mr. T Experience, and author of the novels King Dork, King Dork Approximately, and Andromeda Klein. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Frank. Thanks for having me. So how did you get into punk rock? Uh, well, I suppose the, the way I first heard it was uh, on the radio. And that would have been, I'm my, I would, I turned 13 in 1977, which was the date, the punk rock date. And I lived in a, a very sleepy suburb, uh, with pretty much no contact with the world outside it other than the radio. And, uh, I believe the first time I ever heard anything, uh, that you could categorize as punk rock was on the Dr. Demento show. And, uh, but there were all sorts of other radio, uh, uh, all radio contexts in which you could hear punk rock at the time. It was the supposedly underground happening thing, uh, in the, in the world of uh, culture at the time, but there were these specialty shows on all the major radio stations that would play. There was one called the outlaws and one called the heretics, uh, and then there were college radio uh, stations Then I would just sort of huddle by my radio trying to ride the dial, trying to uh, find the interesting things that were all bunched up on the left and they would all uh, left of the dial and they would all bleed into each other. And um, as far as why it appealed to me, it was not what was uh, being paid attention to by any of my peers. So I felt that, uh, this was something I could, uh, adopt as my own, uh, kind of emblem. It would set me apart from everyone who I hated. Uh, <laughs> the rhetoric of it was very salutary in, uh, in that regard as well, because there was a lot of, uh, uh, rhetoric in these songs that I was listening to about alienation, about, hating people and so forth. So I re really gravitated towards that. Uh, that phase didn't last too long, but while it lasted, I was all punk rock all the time. And uh, I had to go through a lot of, uh, I don't know, there were some, a degree of, I think a lot of people who are my age who were interested in punk rock at that time uh, probably have a similar story. It was sort of mild, uh, to medium level uh, harassment from everybody once they found out that you were a punk rock person, um, and so I was, uh, I would, I had some, there were some fisticuffs involved <laughs> in certain, you know, hey punk rock, hey Devo, that was the <laughs> thing that they used to say. Uh, I'll tell you the best anecdote of this uh, with little Doctor Frank and the radio, where there was a show that I liked to listen to that was on uh, the Stanford college radio station kzsu uh and it was very hard to tune in but i found out that there was this one tree that i could climb with my little radio that i could if i climbed to a certain height i could get the the show uh that i wanted to listen to and so i would do this during uh the lunch period at my uh, intermediate school. I was in seventh grade and that was a great way to spend lunch until I was discovered by the, uh, the 
other kids, there were a lot of mean, mean guys that you encounter in, uh, in school as in life. And so they thought it's kind of obvious the thing to do when there's a scrawny little guy up in a tree listening to radio, you throw rocks at him. So that ended my experiment with, uh, uh, high wire, uh, antenna seeking. I would do anything for KZSU and, uh, punk rock, but I would not do that. So I had to come down to uh, come down to earth, so to speak. Does that make it, does that make punk rock somewhat inherently political in a very broad sense that, uh, you, it, it somewhat defines your relationship to other people. And a lot of political attitudes are actually about your relationship, what you think of other people. And if the establishment is doing X, like listening to disco, then it's kind of a political move to not do that. Uh, not ex- yeah. like obviously, but like it has political undertones. Kind of. Yes. Although, uh, then there's the, there's an, there's the, the irony of, that becoming, if not the absolute mainstream, becoming as you know so close to it as it might as well be. And then now, I think you know uh, when Green Day became the biggest rock band in the uh, in the universe and probably the last big rock band that there will ever be, um, it becomes there. There's a bit of irony talking about the the this social rebellion that I was referring to and that you're talking about. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. When I was 13, I was the only person I knew who uh, was aware of the clash, say. Um, What I didn't realize at the time was that, you know, they were like one of the biggest things going. They were in (laughs) Time magazine. They were on television. They were, uh, they were as, they were as mainstream as you get as well. There was nothing, uh, other than your own personal mythology that you build up uh, when you uh, adopt these things as as your thing that you're interested in, um, there was nothing that different um, to distinguish The Clash from any other rock band as far as your relationship to society for deciding to like them. I mean, obviously, uh, you could point to differences in the between different bands and what they sound like and what it means that they sound like that and and so forth, which is a whole other uh, question. But so I agree with what you said, but I think that, that there's uh, there is a, a line of irony that runs through the whole thing, which makes the rebellion angle of punk rock uh, very hard to pin down in many cases and it makes the behavior of people that are infused with that spirit often rather silly. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I've been I've been involved in this since I was a little kid. Involved in it as an oddball off to the side, not involved in it as a central activist or anything. But I've always uh, one of probably one of the reasons I was always an oddball to the side on this is the same reason I was an oddball in uh, in seventh grade. Uh, I just uh, don't uh, get along with communities of people and I don't (laughs) like the idea of communities of people. And while the sentiments of a lot of these bands that I was listening to when I was at the prime age of uh, relating to this kind of coincided with that sense of alienation, there was a greater world of uh, of, uh, there was a a so-called punk rock community in which the same dynamic was busy at work 
uh, marginalizing and ostracizing uh, with the, the oddballs like me with our, uh, you know, not not against our will. I was like, I was always happy to be ostracized. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, I felt I've always felt even as a little kid, I must be doing something right, even though that carries with it a bit of misery. Well, that that puts me in mind of um, I think punk rock for me played a, a big role in eventually in my development as eventually a political thinker and the the path that I took. But it I realized this sense of alienation and the um, the the kind of subversion of the the mainstream part of it, whether that was authentic or not, um, that. I think I might be able to therefore credit you with putting me on this path because my my first like I guess the very so the very first punk rock show I ever attended I think I was a freshman in high school um, and maybe maybe a sophomore I don't remember but I um, it was to see you guys perform at the shelter in Detroit mm. um, with I think the band Telegraph and because my friend Mike Wheeler said you guys were good and. And then he and I, we sat in a car in the parking lot at my high school listening to um, the album Love is Dead and our the, – the president of our student – like our student council president who was a like – Square. A square and was – very Republican, um, and he used to he, he used to read Rush Limbaugh's books in class. Um, <laughs> and he walked by. Well, Square is not a good enough word for this yeah, guy. <laughs> he, he walked by us, uh, two scrawny kids in our crappy car in the high school parking lot, and I think the, the song "Ba Ba 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 Ba" was playing. And he stuck his head in, and in his role as student council Republican president, said, that's the fruitiest song I've ever heard. <laughs> um, well, I, I love that story that in, that uh, that encompasses and encapsulates uh, not only a common experience uh, in a general way, but also uh, the relationship of people who like my band to the band. Uh, you're always having to defend it from uh, from people. It's interesting because, you know, I grew up in California. We didn't have guys like that. I never met someone who would who would have done the equivalent of reading a uh, um, Rush Limbaugh book. I mean, that you know, the, the guy who would do that where where I grew up, he would have been carrying the Noam Chomsky book. But it's a similar. It's the same dynamic, really. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a acceptable uh, um, complex of behavior, attitudes, and it mostly boils down to manners and etiquette that is uh, that is safe and uh, vindicated by the community at large. And one of the ways that you prove you're part of that. Uh, acceptable community is to identify the weaker elements and attack them. And uh, this is something that uh, once you have recognized that pattern, which is something I did re recognize at a very young age, you see it played out over and over and over again in pretty much every context that there is. And I think that's something that I was uh, mm -hmm. uh it's an important lesson I was taught. That is that is a political insight. Um, it doesn't make you want to join a party. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. Yeah. Unless 
unless your ambition is you really want to be that guy, uh, which I never felt like I wanted to. Well, so then how did you go from being the 13 year old climbing trees to listen to the radio to then playing in a punk rock band? You know, it, it's a, it was a, uh, so you listen to bands and, uh, you have a fantasy life where you're a member of a, of a band where you're in a band, you're the greatest band in the world in your head. And, you know, you practice, you know, you start miming playing the guitar with a tennis racket, and then you uh, maybe switch to an actual guitar at some point. And it's, I, it's very much like when you first start doing it, when I first started doing it, it was very much like uh, playing Batman or Star Trek or uh, Billy Jack or whatever we used to play. Um, and uh, for me, that uh, kind of current of fantasy extended through up all the way through when I, uh, you know, entered high school, became a teenager. And then you gradually got more elaborate with the uh, with, you know, playing Batman and so or playing Rockstar. So you had a real a real guitar and you, you know, found some other guys to play with and you pretended to be a band and you would have pretend shows, which at first was just in, you know, the basement. And then you managed to maybe finally find a place to play. But it was, uh, you, you see what, what I, you see the dichotomy that I'm setting up. There's a, there is a real world of real rock stars, real, uh, uh, you know, show business. And then you have this fantasy imaginary, version of it that you play at. And then for me and people like me, this, uh, mirror this sort of rather pathetic parallel version of the real thing continues on, uh, to, for your whole life. And you wind up with a sort of career. Uh, but it never, I mean, I, when I first realized that, I had a band that some people thought was a real band. It was, you know, sometime in the nineties and it just really shocked and amused me uh, because it didn't, it never quite seemed real. Uh, and it never was, uh, uh, you know, real in the sense that, I mean, nobody, nobody ever got rich over the Mr. T experience <laughs> in any way, shape or form. It didn't justify itself economically at all. Uh, and, sort of in terms of the gratification that you get from being in a band, you do have a lot of fun in being in a band. You meet a lot of girls, you uh, have a lot of interesting experiences, but uh, it's, I've only recently, uh, just very recently in the last few years had the experience where I can uh, look back on it and pick bits of it out that seem, uh, edifying where I can say, I'm glad I did that. Look, I did that. That's, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but that kind of, you know, where you have a, a satisfying artistic career, uh, that always, that never seen, that was never part of the world of, of doing it. And as far as what you were, you are thinking of when you do it the whole time when you're in a kind of a marginal, uh, operation, like not just my band, almost all the bands, hardly any bands are ever successful in any, to any degree. Uh, you're, you're, you don't know why you're doing it. And you're thinking, what, what the hell am I doing here? Nobody's at this show. This is the last one I ever do. And then, 
you end up for some reason doing another one. And then you do it for 10 years. <laughs> Next thing you know, or longer. Uh, when, when you started out in the Bay Area with the political scene in the punk world, that there's a lot of association with, say, the Sex Pistols and Margaret Thatcher and the Coal Towns. And then, of course, Reagan America. I was listening to Black Flag the other day and definitely on some live albums and definitely some, some references there. Was that pretty much the kind of scene that the, the, the politics of the scene that you came up in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when it, it to my I mean, I never liked that. Um, mostly because of the aesthetics of hardcore, which I'll hardcore being whatever was happening at that time when my band was starting the mid 80s, early 80s to mid 80s. Uh, and I used to complain about it at the time and joke about it that, you know, all the songs were uh, they, they were all Reagan bands. All the songs are about Reagan or El Salvador. And partly, uh, I got a lot of energy out of the fact that when I started, when my band started out and we were playing not very, we were doing it quite ineptly, but we were attempting to play pop songs, uh, traditional with traditional topics, hopefully you add a little twist to them to make it uh, justify its existence. But basically it's, you know, pop songs about girls, uh, love songs, breakup songs, that sort of thing. Very traditional approach to music, uh, which uh, was extremely offensive to the, quote, political establishment. And it's like, where's your where's your El Salvador song? You know, <laughs> where's your Reagan song? It's like, I was Reagan band. Oh, we're playing with four Reagan bands. <laughs> and um, the thing, the reason that I didn't like it, though, was I if you wrote a great song about uh, about Reagan, I would be the first to, uh, applaud it. But, uh, what I, what I didn't particularly care for, um, was the fact that there was very little attention paid to the songwriting. The songs were not that good. The, the bands all played really fast. So there was not much rock and roll about it. And then, you know, lastly, and less, least importantly, although maybe most annoyingly, it was all very preachy, uh, is a combination of ideological preaching and almost complete ignorance, uh, which <clears throat> about what they were ostensibly talking about. So I didn't, I, I rebelled against that uh, immediately. But the way that I felt about it at the time was just, you know, I was, I was born too late. Why couldn't I have been 20 years old in 1977? Then I would have jumped into a world where the punk bands were still playing pop songs. This is a, that's yeah, how I felt it at the time. That relationship yeah. to punk punk bands and Republican administration, I think it's probably still continuing to this day. But for yourself, other than rebelling against the the sort of predominant and somewhat banal political views that were everywhere, did you have political views yourself uh, that were where you thought that at that time that they were overstating or wrong about what they were saying? You know, I, I always I, I've revised this opinion a bit now. Uh, I assumed that everyone that nobody believed any of the things that they were saying and that they were just faking it. And I think to a large degree they were. I think now that probably I've seen uh, I've had more experience of ideologically committed people to realize that it is possible to uh, uh, endorse the silliest rhetoric as though it it's, you know, comes from God on high. Um, but. On the other hand, the context I grew up in, San Francisco Bay Area, there was no significant uh, in, 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 in my class 
and this is, you can use the word class for this, in my class context, there was no significant uh, disagree, political disagreements or diversions from anything. It was just, you know, obviously our interests are the interests of the Democratic Party. Um, and I was as much in uh, in that mode as as anybody else. My parents, my teachers, clergy, the the police, the, you know, they were all kind of leftish, um, you know, feel good uh, Democratic partisans. And I never had any reason to uh, think that that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the obvious truth, uh, uh, banal as it is. Um, and it wasn't until I was much older and I actually met some Republicans that I realized that they were actually people. Um, <laughs> I had never met, well, I think I met my first Republican at age 25. So, <clears throat> um, and I, you know, they're actually, a lot of them are pretty nice and not stupid necessarily. There's stupidity is widely, uh, distributed across the uh, the landscape, um, anyway. Uh, but you know, the thing that I believed at the time and that I would maybe back off from a bit was that there was just, it was a, it was appropriating the iconography and rebellion of the previous eras that they were ostensibly in rebellion against. Right. I mean, it was punk rock politics, of that at that stage was hippie politics, basically, even if they might have a kill the hippies song. And it's because that was associated with, uh, with the, in that class, that's the middle to upper middle class people who went to college type people who were almost everybody in that world. In, in that class, the way that you, the acceptable way to express uh, youth, rebellion was conforming to your the uh kind of uh i don't know ethos aesthetic and the, the, the there's a you know all the all the leftist rhetoric i mean in a very mild way you know I mean, the, the reason why i didn't think that they ever meant it was that obviously you know they would if They'd be the first up against the wall if <laughs> the revolution comes. Obviously, they're the they're the class enemy, um, sort of by definition. Uh, and you know the 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 idea that you are um, uh, that the the idea of sort of I don't know uh, the apotheosis of rebellion that involves joining this this mass of uh co-thinkers uh always just it uh, seemed like nobody could fail to recognize uh the uh paradox there but in fact i i know that that happens all the time but uh at that time but it was the, all these thoughts were born of just basically hostility to the aesthetic really for me i was resentful of the fact that you know if my ideal of punk rock was the buzzcocks there was no buzzcocks to join there was only you know mdc and reagan youth and uh you know intensified incoherence or whatever the bands were called and i resented it greatly because i really liked the buzzcocks and so uh i my reasoning wasn't necessarily completely sound but i think there is something um in that vague class analysis 
because um, the there was a how can I put the so when I was a kid and I was in school or I was with my parents or I was with you know the clergy the police and all the authority figures um, there was one way that you could really impress them and get a pat on the head which was to be quote political and that meant you know uh, if you if some uh, vaguely leftish rhetoric spilled from your mouth, they would give you a gold star and say, well, it's very nice that you're so interested at your age. <laughs> and we all learned to do it. And I was not above doing that. It was a, it was the path of least resistance. But so I know I probably noticed that in fourth or fifth grade. And then fast forward to San Francisco punk rock scene. That was precisely the dynamic that Tim Yohannan had with all of his acolytes. It was like um, it was this. Who's Tim Yohannan? T- yeah, so Tim Tim Yohannan was the uh, patriarch of the. He lived in San Francisco. Patriarch of a certain type of uh, an interpretation of of punk rock, which where punk rock wasn't the main thing. Punk. I mean, if you want to talk about political punk, he is the the guy that brought the hippie politics into the into the eighties and, and made it mandatory for people who wanted to listen to loud and fast music. That's who it was. Founder of maximum rock and roll. Um, I knew him a bit. I had, I like him. I liked him. He's not around anymore. I liked him very much. Uh, I had long conversations with him. Uh, and, uh, he, in, during these conversations, um, I was probably more shocked than I have ever been in my life when I realized that he didn't really like the music that he was championing either. Uh, He liked the kind of music I liked, which which I was shocked about because if you listen to maximum rock and roll, it was, um, it was, you know, it was not, it, it wasn't the buzzcocks. I can tell you that. Uh, but, you know, if you looked at his record collection, he had all the sweet singles. He had all the stone singles. You know, but he was championing this very, un, to me, unlistenable music. Um, and he, because he believed that he was a communist and he believed that this was the way to the revolution and to start a youth movement that would overthrow the government, he really seemed to believe that. So uh, but the the um, the idea that you can embody some spirit of rebe- rebellion by stepping into a complex of clothing, iconography, and and rhetoric. Uh, people love to do it, and these authority figures encouraged it. In my way of uh, of looking at it at the time, and and now I think that's true. I mean, basically, this fourth grade situation of your teacher patting you patting you on the head because you've heard of Noam Chomsky continued on through uh, through the rest of the of social dynamics as I observed it um, through adulthood well so your kind of rebellion against that I suppose in the scene was to was in playing pop songs about girls um, but were there bands around then that were political, but were pushing a different sort of politics. Not in my experience. I mean, they're they're uh, you know. I mean, well. So I have to say, the scene that that happened that became famous that happened around the stuff that we were uh, were were doing. One of the things that characterized it, and one of the things that was good about it, was 
a de-emphasis of that um, and more of an emphasis on what makes music mm-hmm. uh, interesting and fun. So uh, I would accept I mean, it's the the kind of hardcore political thing where, you know, every band was like a, uh, a you know, they had to issue po- uh, position papers on the issues of the day that that wasn't a part of that of that scene. However, in a the passive way where everyone pretty much agreed with everyone else on this kind of watery uh, left liberalism that never never changed in my world. Uh, and in fact, there was a scary other uh, po- politics uh, associated with with quote punk uh, that um, was you know a, a, was the right wing the Nazi punks and that sort of thing. Uh, I never directly encountered that other than in denunciations of it uh, by Maximum Rock and Roll, and 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 it turns out you know now that. He uh, was like the Witchfinder General. He went a bit too far. And uh, if you have, if you read the Agnostic Front um, uh, stuff that in the, the book and that has come out lately, uh, I think you know he was unjust towards them. But at the time, they terrified me, and I didn't want anything to do with that. I, I, it's, uh, but you know the way that. Uh, the way that a a communist denounces someone is to call them a Nazi, no matter who they are, right? So, and that was what Tim did. Uh, he wanted control over the intellectual current associated with punk, and uh, it was his idiosyncratic, in some ways, but in other ways, quite mainstream communist. I mean, he was like a communist organizer in many ways, and he uh, was trying to you know, uh, gather the youth around and to use them to create a vanguard, all of the, all of the stuff that when you read it in the, in the theory just seems so preposterous, you know, some people, uh, did, uh, try to put it in practice, uh, very literally. And Tim was one of those guys. Uh, and, but, and he was successful at it in his way, but also the success that he had was also the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, basically a monoculture uh, even now and certainly then um, in, uh, you know, you would have to go to, I mean, in, in this in this class of, of people where the highest thing you could do is to be regarded as political. Yep. You could get the you get a political medal and that's that's great. And the reason why that the, the class angle of it is so salient um, is because, uh, I mean, I think it goes back to universities. I mean, do you you ever think about, do you ever wonder why, this is something I wondered at the time, and I wonder now why the terrorist uh, groups of the 70s that were most salient here were the weatherman and and the Simeonese Liberation Army. Uh They had the precisely the same rhetoric they had uh they did the same sorts of things they were the same people basically but the weather underground were uh uh came out of the university system that were people like us and they and i think that that people associated them with some kind of higher uh truth higher meaning that was uh leftist political, whereas uh, these 
SLA bozos were uh, were they were saying the rhetoric, but they didn't have the antecedents. And th- this is the reason why I'm thinking of this in in connection with punk rock is that a lot of the um, aesthetic that in the the kind of accoutrements of of the punk iconography seems to have come directly from that world. And when I was, you know, when I went to my first punk rock show, pretty much, uh, which was the clash at Kizar stadium. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to, how to punk, but I was 13 years old. And the thing that, that happened when you, you know, left the, the concert hall, uh, you, uh, picked up all of your punk rock stuff. Like if you went to see, you know, Steve Miller, you'd get your Steve Miller shirt and your Steve Miller hat and st- stuff. Well, what you got was people handed you the revolutionary worker. And, <laughs> um, and I, I, I still have the, the, I swear to God, somewhere I have a handbill for the RAF, which is the uh, Red Army Fraction, the Bader Meinhof gang, and I thought it was cool. It it had a, um, a machine gun in the in a circle, and it was it looked like a punk flyer. Well, you know uh, that aesthetic, um, in, as a in a in a sort of only half understood way in many cases of what it refers to. Uh, cycled through the generations of punk and you still see it now. It's like, uh, um, what it, it was, it was the, a lot of these, these things came as sort of <laughs> crashing revelations to me. It was like, wow, <laughs> I was, I was carrying around this terrorist flyer. <laughs> and, um, I, when my dad came to pick me up and he saw my, uh, armful of, uh, revolutionary communist, propaganda that I was coming back from the clash uh, concert with. And I just remember the one thing he said, sort of staring off into his face was like, you know, the communists often try to find alienated uh, youth of high intelligence. And (laughs) well, they they didn't, they didn't catch me, but (laughs) um, so, so to answer your answer to your question, no, there, I never encountered this scary right wing even though it certainly existed, it existed in Europe, um, and I guess there were skinheads here as well. Although I, I never believed, I just I just I never thought anybody was serious about anything because I thought, how could they be? Mm-hmm. Do you have a theory about why the anti-authoritarian countercultural movement would so? reject free markets and libertarianism. I mean, is it, do you think it's at all substantive or are we giving them too much credit? Because when you look at some of these people, uh, they would, they're, they're in their, the way they uh, conduct their lives um, uh, that, you know, there's something very, I mean, if you look at maximum rock and roll, you know, he built a successful business um, and it, it, there was there's this thing that they call DIY that they elevated into kind of a, a sacred principle. I mean, DIY, 
at least before I encountered it in the punk rock context, just meant putting up shelves. <laughs> but they, it's like, this is, well, if you DIY, you can make your own products, sell them and keep the money for yourself rather than, uh, than giving it away to some, uh, uh, corporation, you know, corporate entity or, I mean, they, they were, I mean, uh, uh, they were the most committed capitalists that you'd ever meet, but of course not in name. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think the explanation has got to be psychological and, um, because what I'm saying is a lot of the lot of the figures in uh, in the in the punk rock world seem uh, the espouse libertarian ideas, certainly. And there was certainly a, a libertarian uh, as an adjective um, strain in the in a certain sector of the of the hippie hippie politics that they adopted again, not in name. So you would, you would think that there would be an affinity. And I think a lot of times as people get older, they recognize that and you don't, uh, I mean, sometimes they, sometimes you don't, but I think like, as I think it's psychologically, I think that it is just, there is a, there is a mode of associated with youth rebellion and it goes back to the sixties. And that mode is not, uh, it is, it is, uh, anti-capitalist. yeah, part it's anti-capitalist, right? I mean, regardless of what capitalist means, it's anti-that. Well, do you think that a punk rock band, in if, if it's just relative, it, if some of it could just be relative, you have to define the establishment in your head who you think it is, and then right. rebel against them. And so, would a punk rock band in the Soviet Union be all for capitalism? Be all well, about free and markets? in fact, you can. I mean, not with it's not in so much in terms of punk rock, but you know the the example of the. Of all of the the Czech dissidents and the uh, happy classic people of the universe, universe, et cetera. You know, I mean, uh, they were they were not anti-Western the way their counterparts on the other side were anti-Western um, for good reason, right? But I don't know. Uh, I uh, I I wish I knew more about uh, Eastern Bloc uh, uh, punk, so to speak. I mean, I, my band. Did a tour of Europe uh, the first time we ever went to Europe. Um, it, tour is kind of a grandiose way of putting it. We did a we visited Europe in the summer of '92 and went to several former Eastern Bloc countries, uh, pretty close to uh, you know when the to 1989. Obviously, you know three years after 1989, including Poland and uh, Belarus and. Um, Czechoslovakia, been, Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, and and Czechoslovakia. And the uh, the main thing I noticed noticed was there was that these kids had no experience of of the scene we were bringing to them at all, and they didn't know what to do. And there was obviously no scene there. Um, I don't think you know. I mean, obviously, if you are in, in living in a totalitarian country, uh, you're not going to have a punk rock scene, right? So, it the the, the lesson there is there may be more than um, uh, three years to develop those traditions, and I'm sure now they exist, and now they probably are are just aping the American ones, uh, is my guess. So I want to shift gears a little bit to talk some about. Your current hobby horse seems to be the freedom of expression issues mm-hmm. um, and and kind of shame culture and 
campus speech and so on. So in 2004, you guys put out the album Yesterday Rules, and it has on it one of my favorite songs that you've written, um, Institutionalized Misogyny, <laughs> which is a, a very funny song. I, it was particularly funny for me because that was when I was finishing up college at the University of Colorado at Boulder as an English major um, and studying literary criticism and so on. And so it was very kind of embedded in the stuff that that song was making fun of. But it occurred to me that that – well, that song was funny in 2004. If you were to release that song today, I wonder if – how much you would get told that that song is not OK. Oh, I, uh, absolutely. The, the, the stuff I that you're would. making fun of. So could you, <laughs> and, I guess, tell and, us a I bit. Mean, like, yeah, this is an interesting uh, – uh, I don't know. It's like – it's true. It's going back in time because at the time – the, the inspiration for that song was a conversation I had with a, uh, a woman, a young woman who was on a tour that, uh, that I uh, – uh, song of a, a tour of of singer songwriters a brief, little brief tour that i did and there was just this one night where she just was talking um kind of canned rhetoric about foucault etc and um i just found it really amusing but at the time i thought and i was not wrong i thought that that was uh the that it's the 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 day where that rhetoric ruled supreme had passed and she didn't realize it. That's why it says, you know, you're repeating pre-recorded things they used to say in universities and books on left-wing politics. Well, now it's even more so than it ever was from what I can tell. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the whatever you want to call that mode of thinking and talking postmodern, uh, uh, they have a lot of names for neo-Marxism right now, yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Ne neo-Marxism, intersectional, whatever the buzzwords are. Um, it's come back with a vengeance, and now it controls everything. It seems like pretty much um, is that I I was a I was uh, a little more secure in the ridicule than I than I probably would would be now. But that's one of the things about songs, art, what have you. It uh, not only exists in its own uh uh world uh divorced from uh from time and anything outside it but it also is a snapshot of a particular state of mind of the and, and time of the artist and that's definitely it's like a it's like a historical um uh you know not a historical novel we don't have a word for historical song uh, but whatever the equivalent, the song equivalent of a historical novel uh, is uh, would be a song like that. Um, people, I, I tell you though, um, people with your background universally love it. <laughs> I've got, I've, the, the, and those are the people who love it. Nobody else ever mentions yeah. it. But it's anyone who's been to grad school. Um, <laughs> That's what if someone if someone tells me that's their favorite song, I know. Okay, you went to grad school. <laughs> well, on that because you know, with freedom of expression and what's changed, and you do go to high schools and and you're a young adult author, and and there's a lot of controversies there too about young adult authors and what they can say. Do you have any theory about 
what has happened? Because, I mean, your whole life has kind of been about expression and saying things, and you've been in different yeah. scenes where it was about expression, uh, you know, and obviously punk rock being the biggest example of that. Uh, what do, you, do you have any theory about what happened? What happened? Yeah, why we have college students, uh, you know, protesting on this, and oh. why free speech seems to be heavily under attack from the the left, the kind of people who probably have punk rock bands. I mean, I imagine I've been to a punk rock show in a while, especially not with teenagers, but if that kind of anti-free speech rhetoric uh, is being punkified, if you go to a show now, they're probably, they might be singing about, you know, why liberalism is hate speech or some of these things that you hear coming out of campuses. Maybe. Uh, I mean, you, the the premise of your question is right. But, uh, you know, we, we are this is a it's a post rock world that we live in now. Uh, uh, and I don't I think of it that that brand of that collegiate, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric, the um, uh, what's that Olympia College um uh, the Brett Weinstein uh, incident. Yeah, um, there's so many you know, I can't even keep track. A, yeah. Those kids are not listening to rock, to punk rock and rock music. It, it's a, we're, it's a, it's a. There's a line that separates us from them as far as uh, culture and music. I mean, it's uh, the you know, and when when I, as you have experienced, uh, when my band does shows, it's all people well into adulthood. They, they sometimes they bring their kids. And there's maybe a few oddball teenagers that will that get in that uh, become interested in it as well. But it's not it's not the same sort of thing. It's not on the cutting edge of anything, which is the it is what it is. I've I've, I've found that kind of liberating in a way that uh, since there's no possibility of ever uh, being uh, of of you know jumping into the mainstream at all by any means it's kind of a bit a bit freeing for what uh for what you can do at least your attitude but uh, as far as the question goes yes i do kind of have a a theory of this this is something that um i came across in uh thomas merton's diaries and it's a quote that i've uh that i've quoted many times because it really hit me like uh, you know, it was like a lightning bolt um, where he's talking about uh, the politics within the Catholic Church. But what he says is, I pulled it up here just as you were asking the question, both the conservatives and the progressives seem to me to be full of the same kind of intolerance, arrogance, and empty headedness, and to be dominated by different kinds of conformism, in either case, the dread of being left out of their reference group. And what what I read that when I first saw it, I read it 10 times and it suddenly dawned on me that uh, of all, of, no matter of all the confusion that is wrought by trying to understand uh, political uh, politics and political rhetoric and actions and thought and everything, uh, there's a, uh, it is ultimately human behavior and uh Usually, a situation uh, like that can be far more easily uh, understood uh, with reference to group dynamics and behavioral psychology. And I have since sort of uh, following that teaching as far as how to look at uh, at, at 
political behavior. I have never seen a situation that does not uh, a political situation that does not um, uh, bear that out. And certainly in this social media world on Twitter, Twitter might have been created as a um, as a as a grand uh, illustration of it on purpose, you know. Uh, I think that, you know, we we uh, and it's a, some of the same social dynamics, though, that I observed and and uh, hated and uh, sort of cast the jaundiced eye on and ridiculed back when I was a kid, which is, you know, we are basically glorified chimpanzees. And part of their behavior is that the the strong identify the weak and then they descend on them and rip them apart uh, in um uh, viciously and bloodily, and we can kind of justify it with uh, high-flown rhetoric and do it while we, because of being humans, we uh, we adopt a righteous mantle for ourselves when when we do it. And everybody does it, and everybody participates in it. I cannot think of a better explanation for the phenomenon that you refer to than that. So we, when we talk about this phenomenon, we tend to see it. Uh, the examples that are given of it are either on Twitter, like Twitter mobs, or on campuses. But you, so as a as a YA author, um, you write books about high school kids. Um, you're a lot of your audience is high school kids, and so you, I know you go around and give readings and perform for high school groups. Do you think that this same sort of stuff is as prevalent with? that younger generation as well or well i've heard stories about uh about schools that uh, deliberately try to uh, to inculcate this um which i've never encountered i think a school like that would never bring me to their school that's for for sure um uh what i fa- i mean i'll say I'm not a I'm not a very good person to ask about that because I only see it from uh, from one side and uh, you know you can't tell what you uh, in any serious way what's going on. You go to a, a class a classroom or an audit, a school auditorium of you know captive audience of kids bored out of their skulls who are you know you there's nothing. You, you're lucky if you can get any. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate because I've got a secret weapon, which is the song even Hitler had a girlfriend, which no matter what audience I play it for, it always captures their attention. And <laughs> it always gets a laugh. Um, but in general, beyond that, I, I couldn't say. But what I will say is that what the, to the degree that my books have uh, struck a chord with actual teenagers, um, it is uh, what that shows to me, and I know this not just from it's not just fanciful speculation. It's because I have uh, I talk to them and I get emails from them and messages and, and so forth that the essential uh, experience of alienation uh, that I that expressed in those books, and I tried very hard to make it both universal uh universally applicable but all ac- applicable but also uh in you know different enough from all the other versions of it as to so as to justify its own existence that that still strikes a chord and that things have not changed since uh the experiences i had that made me think of that stuff and uh the experiences people had now i mean i suppose that's like a uh that bears out a a conservative uh 
insight, you know, of there being nothing new under the sun. Uh, but as far as what, you know, what kind of politics these kids will have when they uh, are forced into a situation where they have to adopt a politics, which I think is a kind of a tragedy in a way, uh, that this is a necessary part of, uh, of life that we have now. Um, you know, who knows? I think they will adopt uh, the um, the safest, generally the safest one, the one that uh, prevents you from being torn apart by the dominant people. That's what most people do. Well, then, let me maybe as a as a final question. Then you you got your start into this as part of the the alienated rebellious youth, um, and built your career in a scene that attracted alienated rebellious youth, um, and now write novels largely about alienated rebellious youth. And so, looking back, if you're you're talking to that the next. 13-year-old kid getting rocks thrown at him because he's listening to bizarre music. What what advice do you have for the the alienated youth of today to the person who looks up to you and wants to know yeah, how to um, go about it? Yeah, I don't I it's 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 a ter- it's terrible advice. Real I mean it's it's a terrible it's a it's a horrifying the advice is a horrifying message which is that uh it doesn't get better it gets worse and try to keep your head down, but you'll probably not be successful at that. The only saving grace uh, is that you uh, could, you know, retreat into your own world and build something uh, uh, interesting there that you might be able to make use of in the future if you become an artist. And that's, uh, which is not necessarily um, that encouraging. Uh, But I think there is... There is some solace in communing with, uh, you know, the the like-minded and uh, the like-minded people and people who've said and experienced interesting things in the past. So, you know, doing as much reading as you can never goes astray. Uh, and I, but yeah, I've I've been asked the advice question, and I don't have good advice. I don't think that I don't think there's any good way to navigate this, and there's no uh, there's no redemption. Um, you just have to fend for yourself as best you can, which is often not good enough, uh, frankly, to to uh, uh, protect yourself. Um, but but if you join an ideological mob, you will regret it because you will look back on it and. And, uh, you know, they, they, that, that never, that never goes well, if only because what you're doing when you do that is you're farming out your own mind to other people whose motives may well be nefarious and whose actions almost always are. So, yeah, I would advise individual, radical individualism. Not complaining, I'm just figuring out how everything that you draw.
Thanks for listening. This episode of Free Thoughts was produced by Tess Terrible and Evan Banks. To learn more, visit us at www.libertarianism.org.